If you have a Bible with you, friends, or a smartphone, go ahead and open it to the book of James, chapter 1. It's a little book tucked in at the, near the end of the New Testament, just after the book of Hebrews, and we're continuing our sermon series this morning entitled, A Faith That Works. A Faith That Works. And I chose that title because the burden of this entire book is that we would not be apathetic lukewarm Christians who know what is true in our heads, but live with divided hearts uh, that fail to put our faith to work by obeying the Lord Jesus in the trenches of real life. What James is after here through this entire book is active and wholehearted and obedient faith. And for that reason, he never addresses our faith in the abstract. He's he's a really good pastor. (laughs) He knows it's easy to be a Christian on paper. It's easy to give all the right answers, especially if you grew up in a church. It's easy to be the most patient and loving mom in the world when you're away with your girlfriends for three days and your kids aren't with you, right? That's easy. What's hard (laughs) is following Jesus amidst trials of various kinds. The real context in which our faith plays out as long as we live in this broken world. You know, in other words, no one gets to follow Jesus in a vacuum. Okay, being a Christian means trusting and obeying him in the midst of troubles great and small. That's what it means to be steadfast. As James says in chapter 1 verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Friend, if you're willing, what's James saying? The Lord will use the testing of your faith to prepare you for glory by making you more like Jesus through your trials. And that means his faithfulness to give us all we need to trust and obey him is not in question. Okay, but what is determined anew every day of your life, friend, is whether you will choose to persevere. Today, tomorrow, this month, this year, will you remain steadfast, fighting to live God's way and become more like Jesus through trials of various kinds, or, or will you throw in the towel? And choose the path of least resistance and and just go with whatever you feel like doing. Well, if we're going to remain steadfast under trial, okay, there's something we need to know. There's a spiritual reality we, we need to keep in view and never forget. So listen very carefully to me. Okay, the greatest struggle, the most significant challenge you will ever face in the midst of any trial isn't a problem outside of you. It's a problem within you. How many of you enjoy watching Star Wars movies? Well, since I can't see any of your faces or hands, I'm going to assume I'm not the only one. But, but for those of you who might not be familiar with the series and all its sequels and prequels and assorted releases, 
and marketing materials, the basic context of every movie is pretty much the same. Okay? You have the force, a spiritual power of good, and you have the dark side, a spiritual power of evil. And the movies always begin with what? The dark side having the upper hand, and they end with what? The force emerging victorious. But, but of course, the dark side is never completely vanquished, because if that happened, Disney would go out of business. <laughs> but marketing needs a side. Just think about the, the worldview of all those movies, okay? Star Wars reflects a spiritual notion of reality where there are two forces in the universe, okay, locked in an eternal tension, good and evil. And both are external to us, and we have to choose which one are we going to follow. Will we go with the force, or will we surrender to the dark side? Okay, we're, we're kind of like, to switch movies here, Kronk in the movie Shrek, the first one, where you've got an angel on one side saying, go this way. You've got a devil on the other side shouting, no, go that way. And we're just sort of the poor guy in the middle trying to choose how we're going to respond. Well, all of that is, is a really attractive worldview. Why? Because it reinforces our belief. Let's just be honest, Right? That nine times out of ten, if we do something wrong, it has to be someone else's fault. You know, you've probably noticed that in a culture intent on undermining moral absolutes, victimhood is the new high ground, isn't it? It's the coveted status where my actions are, are unassailable because I'm offended. And it sounds like this. Well, well, maybe I shouldn't have said that or done that, but the only reason I did it is because of what that guy said or what that girl did or what my parents told me or what my brother did to me or what my boss wrote about me. We like to think, don't we? We want to think. It's not like just... We think, we want to think that the problem of evil is largely outside of us. But friends, the Bible paints a very different picture. Very different picture. There are two spiritual forces in the universe, good and evil. But listen, we are not innocent bystanders. Okay, the word of God repeatedly locates us inside the problem of evil. So hear the word of God from the book of James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above 
coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's think about what James is saying here. Every trial, every hardship we experience in this life always comes with temptations. And one of the most insidious to the bunch is blame shifting. And when we do that in God's direction, it might sound like this. If God wants me to stop spending all my money on myself, well, he should give me a better job so I can be generous. If God doesn't want me to look at pornography, well, then he shouldn't have given me these sexual desires. If if God doesn't want me to get angry, he should stop my spouse from criticizing my every move. What's the defensive tactic? What what are we doing? Well, we're, we're hiding our refusal to take responsibility for our actions behind a supposedly high view of God, aren't we? If he's so sovereign and mighty and all the rest, then he decides what temptations come my way, right? And how I'm going to respond, right? So then it's whose fault? His fault that I'm living the way I am. He got me into this mess. And if what Christianity says is true, that he's the only savior, then it's on him to get me out. And until that happens, stop judging me and saying, I'm the one that needs to change. Maybe I do, maybe a little. But you know what really needs to change? God does. Friends, that kind of blame shifting is the exact opposite of remaining steadfast under trial. Okay, remaining steadfast under trial requires two things, neither of which look like that. First, remembering the most important battle in every trial, as I said, isn't outside us, it's within us. We're going to look at that. And second, the hope and help we need to persevere in trial comes from God because he's the source of every good thing. And if we keep both of those spiritual realities in view, then we'll be able to remain steadfast in trial and they'll have a sanctifying effect on our souls. We've got to keep the true source of good and evil in view. So let's, let's look at both of those. Okay, first point number one, our sinful desires are the source of every temptation. Look at verse 13 with me. James is speaking directly here to our tendency to excuse our own sin by blaming God for our actions. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. You know, for for you kids who are listening to me, or teens, maybe it sounds like this for you. I'm not saying I don't have any responsibility for this conflict. But let me tell you, if God would just give me reasonable parents who know how to mind their own business, that I wouldn't be angry all the time. Well, Well, James will have none of that. None of it. Why not? Because he says, God cannot be tempted with evil. Think about that. Okay, in God's eyes, there is absolutely nothing attractive 
nothing desirable, nothing of any worth or value in sin. Can any of us honestly say that? I mean, when we resist temptation, when you resist temptation, if you do, isn't it usually because we know it's wrong, even though it looks so good? Or it looks really good, but we know the consequences could hurt? We're afraid of that? I mean, who among us can say, I'm not even tempted with sin? Friend, only God can say that. And the reason he never sins, unlike us, it isn't that he just has some kind of supersized self-control. No, he never sins because in his divine nature, he can't be tempted by sin. Okay, every part of it is, is abhorrent to him. Habakkuk 1.13, God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Proverbs 15.9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Jeremiah 9.24, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. We can't blame God for our temptation to sin because sin is contrary to every fiber of his being. And because no part of sin is desirable in his eyes, he will never lead or draw or entice or lure anyone to pursue it. As James says at the end of verse 13, he himself tempts no one ever. So, does God allow temptation? Yeah. Does he ordain and permit evil in the mystery of his sovereign will? Yes. Does he allow or cause evil in such a way, temptation included, that he is morally culpable for bringing it to pass? Never. Not once. So if God isn't the source of our temptation, what is? Well, look at verse 14. It's a good question. What's James say? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, well, again, what, what do we tend to think? What do we want to think? In the midst of a conflict with another person, what do we say to ourselves? We say, the reason I'm being tempted to get angry to sin right now is because they said, or because they did, or because God failed. And James firmly says, hold on. How about you turn that finger around? (laughs) Their harsh words created a test a trial, but the temptation to sin never comes from God or them for that matter. It it comes from your heart. It's rooted in your own evil desires. Think about this. Why do you lash out angrily at someone with your words when they hurt you? Well, it's because you desire something, right? 
You want something. You want justice now. You don't want to wait for God to vindicate you. Who wants that? You want to do God's job for him. And you want to make them pay for what they've done by launching a full-scale nuclear strike. Or here's another illustration. How about the temptation to disobey or grumble against the human authorities God has established in our life? Does it, does it come, does that temptation come from the fact that they've made poor or even really bad decisions? No, no, it doesn't. That's what, that's the trial. That's the circumstance that's sorely testing your faith. The temptation comes from the fact that you don't want God or the authorities he has sovereignly established to be in charge. You want to be in charge. You want to be God. You desire that. Here's a final illustration. Okay, how about the temptation to work? See if this one strikes close to home. An excessive number of hours at your job at the expense of your mental health and the spiritual well-being of your family and your own soul. Well, does that temptation come from the fact that you're experiencing a lot of pressure from upper management to make some sort of sales quota? No. That, that's what? That's the trial. That's the circumstance that's hard, but the temptation comes from the fact that you desire the approval of man, your boss at work, more than you desire to please God. Or you desire to create your worth and value through your own performance instead of resting in the worth and value God has already given you as his beloved son or daughter. Or you would rather keep, you'd rather desire to have the responsibility for providing for your family rest on your shoulders instead of entrusting it to the Lord. James isn't denying, in other words, please hear this, the influence of the world or the devil in creating temptations to sin. Okay, he's simply saying that even those two forces would never find such a ready foothold in our hearts absent the sinful desires that dwell within us. The ultimate reason we do what is wrong isn't found outside us, it's found within us. And so whether because they are categorically wrong, like a desire to steal, or inordinate, like a demand to be respected by your children, or premature, like a desire for vindication here and now, temptation always begins at the level of our sinful desires. It doesn't start outside of us. It starts within us. We need to understand that. That's where the battle, when it comes to remaining steadfast, the big battle really lies within us. And if you look at verse 15, that the progression that James describes here adds a really important clarification. What does he say? Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, so think about this very carefully. Our sinful desires, our craving for something God has forbidden, or our refusal to do something God has commanded, always wrong. Yes. Okay, do our lingering sinful desires point 
to our collective depravity and our need for Jesus to come back and make all things new, including our desires. Yes. But is there a critical difference between the internal corruption that desires what is wrong and the act of sin whereby we actually think, feel, or do what is wrong? Yeah. There's a big distinction there. It's an important one. Because until Jesus comes back and his sanctifying work in our hearts, as his people is complete, listen, we will always be, I hate to break it to you, but you will always be tempted by sin. The sinful desires we all experience in different ways, they're never going to go away completely until that day. And so our goal in life, therefore, isn't to escape temptation altogether or to become entirely immune to it. That's not going to happen. Okay, but rather, here's the goal, to learn how to resist it more effectively for the sake of God's eternal glory and our eternal good. Okay, as, as Douglas Moo says, I love this, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. And desire conceives, as it were, it gives birth to sin whenever we welcome temptation instead of resisting it. So so I ask you, friend, as you're responding to the sinful desires that that maybe in a, a new way, a fresh way, you're aware or dwelling in your heart, maybe you're starting to see that, ooh, yeah, I think, That is the biggest battle when it comes to remaining steadfast. As you're recognizing that, are you welcoming temptation in any area of your life instead of resisting it? Because if we fail to resist, if we refuse to to fight our sinful desires and just passively succumb, just kind of, you know, I'm just going to drift down the river of my sinful desires like an inner tube on the James River on a sunny day, which I can't wait to have. But if that's the approach we take, then, then our spiritual end is guaranteed. Look back at verse 15. This is really sobering. What's James say? Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And God won't leave the guilty unpunished. Either Jesus dies for your sin on account of your obedient trust in him, or you will die for your own sin, my friend. Because the choice is yours. But what we cannot say, what we must never say, is that the sovereignty of God over all things in some way excuses our sin. Don't be deceived, my friends. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that someone else, including God, is on the hook for your temptations. Or don't be deceived into thinking that your sinful desires, if left unchecked, won't end in death. They will, friend. They will. Okay, remaining steadfast under trial requires two things. First, remembering that our sinful desires are the source of Every temptation, the most important battle in any trial isn't outside of you, it's within you. And here's the second, okay? The hope and help we need to persevere in the midst of that fight comes where? From God. 
Point number two, our faithful God is the source of every good thing. Aren't you grateful James doesn't leave us with verse 15? There's hope and there's help. And and to those of you who think, you know, whenever I ask a Christian, well, what does God or the Bible have to say about my struggle right now? And you think, well, well, all it ever does is just point out my sin and my problems. And, and that's a real down, right? Where's the positivity? Well, know this, friend. The only reason that verses like 13 through 15 are in the Bible is that humility isn't natural to us. We need God to humble us, to remind us the biggest battle is within us. But God never leaves us there. He always, having done that, having humbled us, he turns our eyes back to him and back to Jesus. So let's see how he does that. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Why does James say that? Remember I said earlier he's a really good pastor? Well, well, he hasn't stopped. He's doing it again here because we like to flatter ourselves, don't we? You know, we say, okay, well, maybe I'll admit I have some sinful desires. But it's not like I only want to do what's wrong. I mean, there, there are some good desires in there too. No one's perfect. We're all a mixture, right? Which means the goal of life, isn't it, to kind of, nurture the good in everyone, myself included? Well, here again, the Bible tells a different story. But it's not one without hope. It's just one that keeps us humble. All that is truly good and beautiful, hear this, in our world, ultimately comes from God, not us. Okay, he's the one who causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And as our creator, he's the one who gives us the ability to cultivate and create, to to fill and subdue, to serve and sacrifice, to love and lead. James doesn't say, well, set A of good things comes from you and set B of good things comes from God. No, there's no, let's portion out the glory credit here. It all goes to God. He says, every good gift. And then in case you didn't catch that, he says it again. Every perfect gift, twice, isn't from you. It's from above. God is the wellspring. God's the source. His mercy and his unmerited favor is the explanation for every blessing in your life. Period. You know what voice I hear in my head, even as I say that? But didn't I make some wise choices? Didn't I work hard? Isn't that why, at least in part, I enjoy, or you enjoy, some of the blessings of this life? Well, absolutely, friend. But even those abilities, those means, as it were, or what? They're empowered and animated by God. So think about it. H- have you surpassed your peers 
in financial prosperity because you're good with money. Deuteronomy 8.17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Have you worked hard to follow Jesus from a young age? Some of you listening to me have done that. Working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There is but one explanation for that, friend. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Maybe you feel like you've made a lot of sacrifices to serve the Lord. You know, giving up, laying down, investing, untold time and and treasure to advance his kingdom. First Chronicles 29, 14, all things come from you, God, and of your own have we given to you. <laughs> or do you fancy yourself an exception to the universal rule laid down by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7? What do you have that you did not receive? Oh, that we could remember that, friends, every day. And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Friend, what is James saying? Don't be so arrogant as to nourish or secretly cherish the lie that says, do you see that achievement over there? Do you see that blessing? that good thing. I made that. I caused that to be. I'm the source. Friend, you're not. You never have been. You never will be. Because our God is too jealous for his glory. Whatever reflects the glory and goodness of God within you or around you doesn't come from you. It comes from him. He's the source. He, he's the father of lights, James says. The one, the one who made the stars. The one who created all things and sustains all things and in whom all things are holding together. And beginning with creation... James adds, God has only done what is perfectly good and will always do what is perfectly good. Why? Because he doesn't change. He doesn't change. Everything in our world changes. You change. I change. All the time. Right now. You're getting older. And so am I. God doesn't. There's, there's no variance in his character. No shifting in his personality. No wavering in his purposes. No diminishing of his power. No lapses in his wisdom. No exceptions to his rule. No uncertainties in his plan. No reduction in his glory. And no evolution in his perfections. And if your mind hears that, and you think, and part of you screams, how in the world can that be so? How can that be real? I know of no such existence, friend, could it be that you are arrogantly trying to create a God in your own image instead of humbly bowing before the Lord of glory who created you? The fact, the reality, 
that all good things come from him and only good things will ever come from him is humbling. But it's not just humbling, it's also incredibly comforting. Incredibly comforting. Because there is one particular good and perfect gift the Lord has given us as his people that guarantees our reception of all the others. What, you know what that is? It's the gift of himself. It's the gift of his only son, Jesus. And when we're tempted to question his goodness, when unanswered prayer lingers, when, when we wander in the midst of trial, has God forgotten to be gracious? Could, could it be that he's gone from being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to tempting me in some way, that, that he's no longer working all things for my good? He's not for me. He's against me. Well, Christian, this is where we look. This is where we look to see God's grace and goodness in the trench of real life. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's that word of truth? What's the gospel? And, and it's the point of greatest contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. Think about it. What, what do our sinful desires produce? What, what comes out of us? Death and judgment. Okay, what does the will of God bring forth? What, what does God produce in contrast, glorious contrast, life and salvation? Hear the words of Paul in Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, the source of all good things, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing, friend. It is the gift of God. That is the gospel. And it is the defining mark. The greatest revelation of the perfect goodness and infinite beauty of God in all his ways. Okay, the goodness God displays in creation, father of lights, culminates in his goodness and redemption. In the salvation that Jesus won for us, that, that we might be set free from sinful desire and its inevitable end to know God and enjoy God and, and serve God with, with all that we are and all that we have. 
And Christian, if, if you've experienced that, if, if through faith in Christ, God, by his spirit, has made your heart alive to him, then that spiritual life he's brought forth in you, that, that reconciliation to the Father, the presence of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's a down payment. The first fruits, James says, of what the whole cosmos will eventually experience when Christ returns to renew all things. And we enjoy eternal life with him and the new heavens and the new earth. But until that day, what is James reminding us of? Remember, you didn't bring yourself forth, Christian. God did. That good and perfect work of salvation in your life, that came from him. That's his work. And he's not going to fail to complete his good work in you. That is our hope. That's where our help comes from, from him in the midst of every trial. That's how we remain steadfast. If you keep the gospel, all that God has done for you in Jesus, in view in the midst of your present trial, Christian, it will guard you from a thousand ills and deliver you from from innumerable temptations. I mean, what, what what do our sinful desires say? Doing life our way is best, right? The good that we work for ourselves is superior to anything God has to offer. That's what our sinful desires say. What does the gospel declare in response to that? 1 Corinthians 2, 9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Friends, your life in this world, like mine, will be filled with trials. And remaining steadfast, persevering and trusting and obeying Jesus in the midst of them requires remembering two things. We have to remember the location of the most important battle, the sinful desires in our hearts, And we have to remember the source of our hope and help, the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be humbled. Our sinful desires are the source of every temptation. And we need to be glad. Our God is the source of every good thing. And so no matter the trial, we grieve and we strive to repent of of the lingering works and effects of sin, our sinful desires. But at the same time, we rejoice in the abundant and overcoming goodness of God. A Christian, a remaining steadfast follower of Jesus, is someone who is always sorrowful and always rejoicing. Humbled by what we see in ourselves and glad in what we behold in Christ. And if you can keep what the Bible says about both your sinful desires and God's glorious, perfect goodness to you in Jesus, both of those things in view, well, then you, my friend, will remain steadfast in trial. Let's pray and ask for God's help to do that. Lord, we're really grateful that you don't just say to us, hey, remain steadfast. <laughs> I'm sending some trials to make you more like myself. So be glad and remain steadfast. You you actually show us 
you very practically tell us what we need to keep in view, what it means for us to remain steadfast. Lord, I pray right now that you would give all of us a a greater gift of humility, that we would agree with your assessment and recognize that the, the greatest battle, the biggest challenge, the most decisive factor in every trial isn't something outside of us. It's, it's the battle within us. Oh, Lord, we need that humility to not blame shift to others or to you, but to humbly take responsibility and recognize the impact of our sinful desires. And then, Lord, secondly, I, I pray with that humility that you would give us an equal and greater measure of gladness in Jesus. Thank you that as soon as you humble us, Lord, you lift our fearful gaze and say, every good, every perfect gift comes from me. Lord, we're grateful for the the goodness and the exceeding perfection of your work for us on our behalf in Jesus, delivering us from sinful desire, setting us free to love and serve you. And Lord, I pray that, that that provision, the power over sin that we find in you, Jesus, and that even now is, is working within us as your people by your spirit, I pray that that would give us joy and hope and help that meets us no matter how far we experience the conviction of your word. Lord, we want both of those things, humility and gladness. Make that one of the defining marks of our church. That we as your people would be faithful to confess our sin. And we as your people would be faithful to rejoice and cling to Christ. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen.